I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Now the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be accepted in your sight. The Lord our rock. And our Lord. How many of you have siblings? Most of us. How many of you have ever had a fight with your siblings? How many of you have, as a result of this, been yelled at by your parents? <laughs> now, I was not generally in trouble as a kid. I didn't get yelled at as much. Uh, not because I was good but because I had two older siblings who were considerably worse. And um, <laughs> so me and my younger sister kind of flew under the radar. But there were occasions where I faced the lecture. Um, and during the course of a lecture, from my mom particularly, uh, there would be, would be probing questions and piercing eyes of my mother, demanding an explanation for what happened. And now that I'm grown up, I've given a few of these lectures in my day. And uh, there's always a question part of the lecture where uh, we call it the exam portion, and it features such classics as, what did you do? And why did you do that? And what were you thinking? <laughs> and did you really think you could get away with that? And aren't you ashamed of yourself? And of course, we all realize these questions have no useful spoken answer, right? You're not supposed to answer the questions. They're rhetorical. It would be highly unusual for you to do so. Uh, the fact that you're sitting through this lecture at all indicates that you were already caught in the act and you don't have a defense, and so therefore the questions require silence. The only proper response is to hang your head in evident shame, thus making it obvious that you do, in fact, realize how rotten it was of you to do that thing, and that you intend not to do so again. It's not what mom's looking So this is what happens, especially when you get caught treating your brother or sister badly. And today, that's basically what we're seeing in this scene in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, except Nehemiah is playing the role of mom in this situation of dad. Uh, and the problem in this chapter is that God's people, like siblings often do, uh, they have forgotten to treat each other like brothers and sisters. In fact, they're treating each other pretty lousy, and Nehemiah decides he'll have none of them. And once again, this is a book about a revival. That's the big picture, right? There's a revival happening in Jerusalem. That's what these books have been about, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've seen Nehemiah face down a lot of obstacles to sustain this revival. Uh, we've been learning that revival and, and reform and restoration, they're good for God's people, but we also have an enemy who opposes that and who is dedicated to stopping it. And today we see once again that not all the dangers are outside of the body. Uh, there are those who hate the church out there, of course, but there are also ever-present dangers of chaos within. Well, again, most hands went up. I guess how many of you have siblings, and some of you have many siblings. I'm aware of that. Um, and so you understand the idea of sibling rivalry, probably. Uh, it's kind of a fact of life. And I, I certainly had run-ins, especially with my older brother, Probably my younger sister could make similar complaints about me, but if you have kids now, you certainly know what it's like to mediate these conflicts, right? Kids are always fighting, it seems. 
It is often over things that seem silly and trivial to adults, but as a kid, they of course seemed monumental. I typically regret asking my youngest kids what they're fighting over. I'm generally unimpressed with the answers, but in the grand scheme of things, the reason I'm angry about these things and the reason they get this lecture is I just want them to get along, to love each other. I don't want to settle arguments about who gets to be Mario and who has to be Luigi, you know, like real issues in life in the games, you know? Or which movie you're going to watch right now, or who ate the rest of the good cereal, or who finished the milk. I don't really care, I just want you to love each other, or at least act like you do. As Rodney King might have said, why can't we all just get along? But brothers and sisters can be very good at treating each other poorly, you all know it. And this happens until somebody puts an end to it, usually mom or dad. The worst thing is when you hear mom or dad's footsteps along the stairs in the midst of your dispute, and you know their footsteps. There's no mistaking it. Every house I've lived in has had creaky stairs, right? Our current house not being an exception. And they creak a little more when mom or dad are coming, and even more when they're angry. And as a parent, I get angry about these things. And I can say what makes me most mad, I think, is when they mistreat each other. I don't like to see that kind of thing. You know, if they forget to act like siblings should. You know, I, I almost, don't take this too far, I almost don't mind them misbehaving as long as they're getting along. They're all working notes now. It's not much different for the people of God, I think. We're, we're, we're all supposed to be siblings. Right? We, we serve the same God, but moreover, we've all been adopted into this family. Uh, in Christ, we're all brothers and sisters. And yet God's people don't always seem to remember that. Uh, sometimes we treat each other like professional acquaintances, uh, our favorite obligations, as it were, uh, sort of, almost like we're, we're co-workers here at the kingdom, uh, business partners. Uh, sometimes we view each other as employees or employers, and, and we look at our differences, and we do let our differences kind of affect the way we think about each other, don't we? Uh, we tend to even impose something of a, of a hierarchy in our mind with each other, and to treat each other, frankly, as the world tends to treat each other. We forget our place, and we forget that we're siblings. Sometimes we see each other through the world's eyes instead of the eyes of Jesus. And one of the most egregious ways this happens sometimes is when it comes to money. This chapter heading, uh, this section heading, I should say, uh, refers to oppressing the poor. That's what Nehemiah style. Now, the word poor is not specifically mentioned in the passage, and I think that's because that's not really the primary identity of the people involved. These are not primarily poor people. They're all God's people, and the struggles they're facing are being either ignored or excused away, or made worse and exacerbated by their brothers. And I don't think the offending brothers even realize they're doing it until Nehemiah points it out. Because when someone is poor, or of lower standing, we do think of them a little bit differently. We may even think, well, gee, it's a shame that they're suffering, but that's just the way it is, I guess, I and mean, life isn't fair. And, you know, don't accuse me of Marxist thinking here, that's not what I'm getting at, nor is it what Nehemiah is getting at. But the passage is not a commentary on economics, per se. What Nehemiah is saying is that he wants brothers to act like brothers. You don't charge your brother full price if you own a, you know, a restaurant or something, right? Like, you treat your brothers differently. It's a different situation. 
Now, if you had brothers, you may say, well, this is how brothers treat each other. That's exactly what they do. But we know we shouldn't. And Nehemiah wants to remind them of that. And he wants them also to remember that it's this, like, by the way, we're at war, you know? Last week, we saw an almost ludicrous level of military preparedness under Nehemiah. We know that the work on the wall has now slowed down significantly just because they need to be ready to fight on a moment's notice. And yet somehow, some of God's people have found a way to kind of take advantage of the situation and make a few bucks in the process. And they're letting their sort of peacetime business practices of unbelievers be the standard. <laughs> and that's uncalled for because they're at war and they are family. The problem is summarized well in the very first paragraph. It presents a series of complaints, three things that, that, that people are complaining about. And I want you to see how Nehemiah prefaces the whole thing in verse 1 again. He says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So it's a great outcry. Everyone is saying, the protest is loud. This is what everyone's talking about. And again, the problem is in-house. It's filed against their fellow Jews. But I want you to notice that the complaint comes from the people and their wives. The outcry is a poetic thing. And I want you to see that because I want you to remember that suffering and exploitation hits the women at home hard. It is wrong to mistreat your brother, but it's even worse if he has a wife and kids. It has ripple effects and it opens him to ridicule. And then look at the specific complaint starting in verse 2. There were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So there's a hunger issue going on, first of all. We, we saw last week that Nehemiah has required everybody to sleep and stay in Jerusalem, right? He wants to keep them prepared, ready for defense, but he also wants them working full-time on the wall. But that comes at a cost. There are more mouths to feed, a lot of them. And the poorest people are feeling the pinch. Think about it in terms of today's economy. We, we know that higher demand for goods and a lower quantity of goods drives inflation up, right? You know this? We, we've been watching it in real time. Thank you, Joe Biden. <laughs> well, guess what? In Jerusalem, you have a bunch more residents, so there's higher demand, right? However, because many of these folks are farmers, there's now no one tending the fields. So the supply has dropped and gone down, and that equals inflation. And no one is making bank on a wall building project, let's be honest. Food prices are one of those things that affect everyone, including the poor. Because if the price of, like, say, docks goes up, that doesn't really affect me, does it? But food is a universal demand. It's not a luxury item. And this is why if the government tells you that, well, the overall inflation rate is getting better, but if the food inflation rate is high, nobody believes the economy is improving because my grocery bills say otherwise. So there's a hunger problem, but it gets worse because they're starting to sell off everything that they've worked for in the process. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Well, that's a real kick in the teeth. I can tell you, I have a mortgage, and I hate my mortgage. Why? Because I'm a normal person. <laughs> my life's goal, financially, I do have other life goals, my, my financial life goal is to pay the house off. I cannot imagine what a bitter pill it would be to have to remortgage the property, not to start a business, 
Not to build an addition, not to repair the bathroom that needs redone, but just to feed my family. That's money that doesn't come back. And so now you have another payment and no way to make money because you're not there on your land to go, you know, grow, grow your crop, crops and, and work the field. So all the while you're losing and falling behind and eventually you're going to lose the land itself. I sort of wonder, I, I guess Nehemiah wasn't too much of an economist. These people mentioned famine. It's kind of hard to say is that a natural famine may have made because he brought them all into the city. But then, wait, it gets even worse. Verse 4 and 5 says, Then were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. That's really messed up. I do say the only certainty in life is death and taxes. It's hard to say which is worse sometimes. But apparently on top of everything else going on, the king's tax collectors are still busily at work. The IRS doesn't care particularly about this wall project. They just want to know what you owe. And they don't accept payment plans. If the king's men show up from the provincial capital with a tax bill, you better have the money. And you better have it now, because I'm only in town for a couple of days. But you can't mortgage the fields to pay the tax, because you already did that to feed your family. So what other assets do you have? Well, the kids, apparently. Children are assets, believe it or not, at least if you train them to be so. Uh, our culture doesn't agree. I was in the market the other day, and, and there was a, a youngish woman. She was pushing around a couple of strollers, had a bunch of kids with her. There were, there were four kids, I think, total. Um, but she was like babysitting, or I don't know. It was, it was part of a job kind of thing. But some other woman said, oh, I hope these aren't all yours. She said, oh, no, they're not all mine. She says, oh, oh, you know, good. God forbid that that should happen to you. Huh? God forbid children. A weird take, but that is our modern culture, isn't it? But in the ancient world, they did understand that children were an asset, and in hard times, they could be sold to the highest bidder. If you were desperate enough, uh, Johnny could go serve in someone else's house as a bond servant. Uh, Betsy could go scrub someone else's floors. They may not fetch much of a market price, mostly because, again, of supply and demand. If a lot of people are doing this, the market's flooded. Uh, if many families resorting to this means more kids are available, probably, than there is interest, so the prices wouldn't even be that high. But people are doing this to survive, and maybe, the idea is, just maybe, uh, you'll be able to purchase their freedom in a few years after the wall's done, assuming that we ever get back to farming and pay off all the other debts first. Now, this is going to sound horrifying to our ears, and it should, uh, because it would obviously be illegal in our country, and it, it's unethical. Uh, but it was not uncommon in those days. We forget sometimes, I think, that slavery and indentured servitude are the rule of history, not the exception. And they're still practiced in many places today. But I don't want you to misunderstand me, because just because it was more common back then, that doesn't mean that people didn't mind. <laughs> I think it was just as horrifying in those days. It is 
is disgraceful, it is dishonorable, and it's shameful. shameful. <laughs> that you would have to do such a thing. But this is the price people are paying to rebuild Jerusalem. This is how invested they are, but it's not right. God's kingdom was not meant to be built on the backs of starving people or the sacrifice of your livelihood and your family. And worst of all, this is happening among brothers, family, fellow Jews. That's the cry in verse 5. They say, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. We're just like you. The only difference is that we're broke. Our families are literally being broken up for the sake of this revival. What kind of revival can that possibly be? And it actually makes me think of the pastorate, pastors who have troubled children. I know that parents aren't to blame for every bad decision their kids make, and I'm not saying that, but it's no mistake that Paul includes as a condition of leadership that elders must be able to manage their households well, and yet it's a struggle. Because it's practically a cliche to say that the preacher's kids are often troubled kids. Someone will say, like, well, I was a PK. And everyone rolls their eyes and nods, like, yeah, we know what that means. And I wonder how much of that comes down to dads who are so invested in the revival as you are, so invested in the life of the church that they're willing to sacrifice their own children in the process. No good can come of that. So in part, this is a good cautionary appeal for me. I haven't sold any of my kids yet. Who won? I don't know. <laughs> I jest. They're wonderful. And if everybody has a good price to offer, we'll come. <laughs> but I don't want to see them in therapy either, at least not on my account. But in Nehemiah 5, they're not selling their children because they're like distracted or bad parents, right? They're doing it to survive. They can't afford the food, they can't afford the taxes, and not to mention that these kids need to eat too. So they resort to these drastic measures, sell the kids, so that they can live through this season of life. And I'm willing to bet that the men who provided these mortgages and purchased the kids probably thought that they were doing a good thing. I'll feed them, I'll take care of them. We're, we're, we're providing a service that enabled this family to survive. Quickly, that way of thinking can get into your head? I mean, it's such a shame that this family is suffering so, but at least they'll have some money for now, and the kids are okay with us, we're going to treat them okay. And I, I'm sure that most of them did treat the kids okay. I'm not thinking, like, the complaint in this passage is not that the kids are being mistreated in these other homes, the complaint is that it's happening at all. So when this reaches the years of Nehemiah, which wouldn't have taken too long, you think, it's Verses 6 through 8, it says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah being happy. I actually like the literal translation of verse 7 where it says, I took counsel with myself, is what the translation says in the ESV. What it actually says in Hebrew is, My heart reigneth over me. Almost as if to say, My emotions took over at this point. 
I was not even seeing straight. My fury was overwhelming, and I wanted to hurt people. That's kind of what we're getting at here. And so Nehemiah brings charges against them. What is he accusing them of? Charging interest. Making a profit off the desperation of others. He doesn't ask it really as a question. He simply makes the statement in verse 7. This is what you are doing. And then he just kind of lets that sink in for a little bit. And then he calls a massive assembly so that we have lots of witnesses. Bring everyone together. And this is when he starts sounding like my mom there in verse 8. And I screwed up. And notice that they have no answer, nothing to say. What else can they say? Nehemiah is trying to demonstrate just how perverse the situation is. He's talking about something that we haven't seen mentioned or recorded, perhaps, because it was something that was being done quietly. Uh, he says that we, meaning I take it the leadership, he says, have we been going out of our way to purchase freedom for as many Jews as we can just to bring them back to Jerusalem? That's what we've been doing. In other words, Jews all over the Persian Empire who were eager to join this revival in Jerusalem, but couldn't, found themselves stuck in some other place, in another province or whatever, enslaved and in debt to foreigners. Nehemiah and others had basically been quietly paying off those debts and bringing people in freedom back here to Judea so that they could be a part of this thing. In other words, they were already purchased once. And you guys are selling them and putting them right back in the same situation. These are people who gave up everything to be with God's people and found that the church didn't treat them any better than the world did. Beloved, this sort of thing will not only kill revival, it will kill the church. We saw last week that vigilance against outside enemies is so important, and yet here we are again on the inside watching brothers take advantage of each other. And again, I don't think they saw it that way at the time. On the surface, they're just doing what's normal, and some might even be patting themselves on the back for helping out. So nice that you can feel like you're a part of the solution, even as you also get richer at the same time. It's not a violent thing, and let's be honest, I think this bad arrangement probably started as a request from the folks who needed the money, right? The rich folk were only responding by making a business deal, but they are placing an obligation and a heavy burden on their fellow Jews and holding something over their less fortunate brothers and sisters. And as I reflected on that, you know, I, I think it occurs to me that this can happen in more than just financial ways, can it? We have a lot of things we can hold over each other as brothers and sisters. Social status, cultural status, racial differences, language differences, and we can quietly sort of categorize people in the church in that way. We can do this with sin issues too. Or somebody's past. Uh, there are some sins that we will forgive but not forget. There are some sins that are so embarrassing that you kind of forever associate people with it. And we may even celebrate their recovery from a certain sin, but we'll never look at them the same. And I think we're all capable of doing this, of holding things over people and keeping them sort of down ahead from us, which kind of keeps them at our mercy. Because it keeps us elevated and honestly kind of makes us feel good that we got to be nice to them at least. We feel simultaneously superior to them, but also be able to be generous in a sort of condescending way. 
Abuse in the church happens when a believer takes advantage of another believer's weakness. And it's sad to say, this happens a lot. Again, recent news, even within our denomination, very sad. But none of us are immune, no church is. And if we are actually brothers and sisters, this should not be. Why? Only as Nehemiah put it, because you've already been ransomed once. Of course, he meant this in a sort of financial sense, but of course we know the rest of the story, right? If Nehemiah cares how brothers treat each other, you better believe Jesus does. Jesus ransomed us from sin, shame, and slavery. He holds nothing over you. So how dare we hold anything over each other? George had pointed out to me that this passage actually fits so well with our Advent readings from last week. The Old Testament reading is out of Isaiah 61, which foreshadows Jesus and it's sort of written in his voice. But I, I want you to listen to this and I read again what was read last week. Thinking of this, as Isaiah writes, but in the voice of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And why? He says in verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And this leads Isaiah to sort of respond on behalf of God's people in verse 10a. He says, I will rejoice, greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Well, let me say it again. What right do you have to hold anything over each other? You were already ransomed. Who is there to condemn? Who is there to enslave? You are free. You are clothed in salvation. You are covered in righteousness because of Jesus Christ who was born to save sinners like you and me. So Jesus once said, the poor you will always have with you. You guys never know that line. At the time he said it, he was responding to Judas's criticism of a young woman who had given to you an extravagant gift. And Judas said that the money would have been better spent on the poor. And of course, Judas had ulterior motives in that scene. But Jesus' response is interesting, isn't it? He doesn't get into theological foreshadowings right there about how his 
body is being prepared for, for, for burial. He, gets about, he talks about that in places, but he doesn't get distracted talking about the best social safety nets uh, or the economy or whatever. He just makes clear, very clear that poverty is not a problem that will ever go away. The elimination of poverty is not a realistic goal this side of glory. The war on poverty is foolish talk. So Jesus did not preach a gospel that fixes everything that is wrong right now. It fixes our biggest problem right now, our spiritual problem, but the poor will be with us until he comes again. And therefore, it is vital that the Christian learn how to live with the poor. And not only the financially poor, but the poor in spirit. Why? Because they'll always be with us. Not for nothing does the Bible spend so much time talking about how believers treat one another, not only when it comes to money, but everything else as well. We are not supposed to hold things over each other. The kingdom of heaven does not recognize worldly hierarchies. We are called upon specifically to do good, especially to the household of faith. It should be different with us. Jesus constantly shows compassion on the poor and suffering. He warns us not to treat people differently on account of money, or status, or race, or background, or even religiosity. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 20, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the unbelievers, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It should be different. So it's not some sort of vague brotherhood of man concept. This is a brotherhood in Christ thing. Jesus does not expect us to solve poverty worldwide. Again, it's not a sin to be poor. But I think he leaves us the poor, including the poor in spirit, in part so that we learn how to be more like him by not taking advantage but showing compassion. I'm refusing to think ourselves better than that. You were born at price, so were they. And now they're family. And that should make a difference in how you treat each other. So Nehemiah challenges God's people to a better way. In verse 9, So I said, The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from that. He calls a spade a spade. This is wrong, and you should stop. Now, I notice that he does not put a gun to their head. He can't legally force them to do so. He's not endorsing a forced redistribution of wealth again. He's not a Marxist. But he exhorts them to do the right thing. He's concerned with how outsiders, unbelievers, will mock and taunt them, and rightfully so. He appeals to their conscience and to the Supreme Judge, and they respond in verse 12 and 13. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Again, he doesn't force them to do the right thing until he has to make a vow. <laughs> Bring the priests in, make them take a vow. And once they have vowed to do this thing, they have voluntarily placed themselves under obligation in the eyes of God. And it is now as binding as law. And what happens? 
the people acting as witnesses say, Amen. And the vows are kept, and the children are freed, and the debts are canceled, and the crisis is averted, and God is praised. I think this has obvious application for Christians in any age because the gospel means that you have been ransomed and you have been adopted into the family of God and we are now a family. We are brothers and sisters. My flesh is as your flesh and my children are as your children. That's what the vow meant that you all took last week at the baptism, right? We are family now and we the act like that starts with not treating each other badly, but it obviously means more than that. Jesus said we should be known for how we love each other. Paul says in Romans 12 that being a Christian means that we should love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, that we should contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, we should live in harmony with one another. And he says, do not be quiet to associate with the lowly. Why? Because Jesus came to ransom your brother and your sister. So this Christmas Eve, this final Sunday of Advent, I want you to reflect on Jesus and what he has done. Nehemiah is a hero in this story, and he does set things right. He's only a type and shadow of the one who's supposed to come a few centuries later that we celebrate tonight. The one who came to a poor virgin mother in Bethlehem who had a shelter in a stable. He did all that because he came to associate with the lowly and to bring good news to the poor and to make us brothers and sisters so that we would always be eager to proclaim the liberty that he brings. So let's remember that. Let's remember that this is good news and be eager to share it and may we always act like a family in the process. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this account of Nehemiah 5, Lord, and for the way that you call your people to account, Lord, so easily to be said as well as using and mistreating each other. So quickly do we sin one against another. And we do it so easily that I think it almost moves a shock value and forget that we, we don't even notice that we're doing it sometimes. Until somebody comes along and points it out. We thank you for raising up Nehemiah, Lord, to teach this lesson to your people. We thank you that it is recorded here for us to learn again. We thank you even more so for what Nehemiah represents, what he foreshadowed, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you sent him to be our brother and to teach us how to do this right, Lord. And Lord, knowing that we were going to fail along the way, and that we were already born in sin, Lord, he came to not only live and show us the way, but to actually come and die into what we could not be a perfect sacrifice so that we could be ransomed and be adopted into your family. Help us to be thankful for that, not just tonight, Lord, but throughout the year. I pray that it will change the way we treat each other in your body. We ask these things in Christ's name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God.